You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. Today we have a hard-hitting topic, but before we do that, uh, just a reminder that we have a course, a one-hour online course coming up March 26th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time to 9.30, and it's going to be called How to Read the Bible Like Adults. And we don't mean that to be, we don't mean to denigrate how people read the Bible in any way. We just want to talk about what are some ways that we found that are more mature ways of approaching this text. So, if you haven't already, it's pay what you want. So, nobody's going to be turned down. If you want to register for that, you can go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash how to read the Bible, and it'll take you to an Eventbrite page. Uh, where you can register and get tickets for that. It's, again, online. It's through Zoom. You'll get instructions once you register. Pay what you want, so we hope you can join us March 26th at 8.30 p.m. Now, back to our topic for today. I say it's hard-hitting because it's about diversity, social justice, and the gospel. How do those all play together? And we, we've talked about this some, but we can keep peeling back the layers of that onion. And I'm excited about uh, the person we have who's qualified, uniquely qualified to talk about these layers and how we can pull them back. His, his name is Xavier Ramey. He leads an organization called Justice Informed, which is a, a social impact consulting firm. So it's grounded in his faith, uh, but it's a lot about social impact, inclusion, community engagement with organizations. So we'll see in particular one thing that's really helpful is, you know, a lot of this, when we talk about the Bible, we talk about right and wrong, it's about individuals and how our actions are impacting others. But something that I think is important we talk about, and that's systems. And how do systems form in communities? And how do those systems privilege or or give opportunity to benefit some and maybe put others at a disadvantage? And how do we talk about that in ways that don't alienate and isolate, but also really dig into the reality that a lot of people face with these systems in place? So, let's get to this conversation with Xavier Ramey on diversity, social justice, and the gospel. The hypocrisy of it all to go to countries that are all brown people and then not understand your responsibilities towards justice and equity at home. Where now along racial lines, you have an entire swath of people saying, make America great. And they all look the same. They all want the same America. It's it's like 92% of African-Americans did not vote for the man who thinks that we should be a country that none of the people that look like me want to live in again. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. 
Well, welcome, Xavier, to this uh, episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So we have a lot to talk about. We want to jump in. But before we do, maybe give people a little spiritual biography, just a little bit of your background and how you got into the things that you're into now. <laughs> the things I'm into now. That's... In, in a tweet, in a tweet. Tweet like, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, my name is Xavier Ramey. I'm a native of the city of Chicago in the great state of Illinois. I am the CEO of a social impact consulting firm called Justice Informs seeks to catalyze institutional spaces, communities, and geographies around relational specificity and creating an invitation to a deeper understanding of how we all not only relate to each other personally, but the effects of our personal relationships on the systemic realities of our world. My spiritual biography starts within the African Methodist Episcopal Church where I grew up. My grandmother was a, a minister in the AME church called St. Stephen's in Chicago. And I grew up typical kind of pastor's kid, uh, meaning that I, I was in church every Sunday for all three services. I was laying under the pews when I was a little kid falling asleep. And then I was expected to join the choir when I was a young adult. And then I was expected to take on other leadership roles as I got older. And eventually I just left all that stuff. And I, I left the church uh, for several years and was reconfronted with God when I took on a role as the head of fundraising for a nonprofit back in my old neighborhood, North Lawndale in Chicago, after I'd gotten my economics degree at DePaul University. And uh, it's a long story. I'm not going to give you the whole, the whole thing of it, but uh, an encounter with uh, a man who came to the door and then subsequently listening to really good counsel and really awesome people who chose to see what I couldn't see in myself. Um, it reconnected me with the relationship with God. That actually created a demand from my life on a greater insistence on asking what I think are better questions that eventually led me to where I am today and realizing that much of the challenges of our world are related to a fundamental breakdown in how we see each other and in that space, how we see the face of God and how we expect to receive and engage one another in the space of harm that has been and opportunities that can come should we choose to truly understand and see each other and ourselves. So I, I channel that work into Justice Inform, which is a consulting firm, which that might sound weird. I'll get into that later if y'all have some questions about how does how does uh, the gospel story fit into a consulting firm's model? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can, I, I'd spent quite a bit of time trying to figure it out myself. And so uh, I, I'd be happy to share that. But I, I, I gleefully and, and, and joyfully lead uh, Justice Informed now in a way that I think is important, given that we're in this great transition moment, this great social transition, political transitional moment in American history. And as an African-American, I'm particularly interested in shifting how we look at this country and who it's for and what it's about. And using my firm as a, a, a catalyst for that seems like one of the best blessings I could have right now in my life. So before we jump into how what you do uh, interacts with the gospel, maybe can you break down some of the words you used? You used a lot of big words when you kind of talked about what justice informs about. So just break it down so that people, everyday people can understand exactly kind of what it is you do. Now, he means just me. Yeah. I, did, I just wanted to protect Pete's oh, no. ego. That's, he just means but. me. Just stop stop it, Jared. Okay. <laughs> hey, Xavier, talk, talk to me. Explain to me what you're doing. Okay. <laughs> so I'm a consultant, which means I give advice. I give advice that comes in the form of strategies. 
the strategies are based upon uh, my understanding and expertise in certain domains as it relates to institutional culture, management operations, community engagement and impact, uh, and public policy. Pull all, all that together. What does that mean at th that I do day to day? I work with companies. I work with nonprofits. I work with foundations. I work with universities, primarily around the cultural challenges that they have. So in, the, in layman's terms, people might call that like diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. Some people might call it corporate social responsibility. Some folks might call it public policy. So how laws affects communities or businesses or people. Some may call it philanthropy. The company engages across those, those areas, corporate social responsibility, DEI, community engagement, and philanthropy to shift how institutions affect the people that are either working there or the people that are stakeholders in that institution's success or failure, meaning the, the folks who live around that, that company. So um, how institutions affect people, that sounds like a very important idea because I think I've been affected by institutions and... and that seems like that's part of our social network that would happen all the time anyway, right? Absolutely. I mean, looking at even myself, right? I'm an African-American who's worked at a lot of really big, fancy places, got a degree in economics. I was the only one in my class to graduate out of the honors. As an African-American in America, in Chicago, I have a certain lens on life. That lens is colored by the institutions, the communities, the government that I exist in and I exist around. As an African-American, my experience has been colored by my, the color of my skin. And there are many people like me. I am also a cisgender heterosexual male. For those folks who don't know what that means, that means that I am, what I, I am the gender I was assigned at birth. I am attracted primarily to women. And I am also a man. And that creates an experience in this world because that puts me in a dominant category. All of that, we've had the, I'll say the, the privilege of, of accessible ignorance and a tolerable level of ignorance, uh, given that ignorance, I feel, ignorance, perpetuated ignorance is a form of violence. And I know everyone may not agree with that or understand that, but I, I challenge you to let that sentiment and that, that term wash over you a bit. Now that we're at the point where people like me, who look like me, who sound like me, who come from where I came from, the Nazareth of Chicago, we have the right to speak. And we are creating new definitions and we're creating new paradigms and new strategies, but we're also doing it with a level of insistence that comes with the backing of things like the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Community Rights Act, the Community Reinvestment Act of 77, um, the Equal Pay Act for women. These types of statutory opportunities have now that we are a generation removed, my generation as an older millennial, we are rising up and insisting that the social order changes with the political order. The challenge that we're in right now why I said America's in this transition moment is because this is the first generation of white people in American history that have to listen to black people. And they're not taking it too well. This is the first generation of men, cisgender, heterosexual men in American history that have to listen to LGBTQIA persons or their company budgets suffer, their revenues suffer, their talent pools remain homogenous. They have to listen to people that no other generation of Americans has ever literally had to listen to. And so they're being pressed on the notion of proximity. They're being pressed on the reality of relationships and they're being pressed on what they would consider the quote unquote normal to be. I see it as my job to bridge that divide and to accelerate the pace of change in America, to make it one, this country one, and our corporations, our nonprofits, and our philanthropic organizations ones, that people like me, 
actually feel comfortable working in, living around, growing, starting, or stopping. Hmm. Um, you said before, just before Xavier, that I think you said perpetuating ignorance is a form of violence. And you said, let that sit there for a while. Well, I've let it sit for a minute, and I want you to explain it to me. It's, it sounds – I mean, it, I'm, I think I get it, but um, flesh that out for us. What do you mean by that? So the, the, the very notion of equity versus like diversity, right? Diversity is the ability to just be seen, to be counted. You know, pe- but, but the challenge is people are often seen but not counted. And even if they're counted, they may not have the agency or power to speak. And so there are these lines of power that exist in our world, in our institutions, in our churches, everywhere. And there's different accessibility at each point. When I say perpetuated ignorance, what I mean is that people have been able to act as if that doesn't exist. They've been able to act as if it is, it is the responsibility of people who have been oppressed to appreciate whatever next little thing that they get that mitigates a bit of their oppression. So for example, You can imagine that in 1866, the year after the end of slavery, slavery was abolished in 65. The next year, there was probably a cacophony of white Americans who were like, isn't this better? You should appreciate this to an African-American like Frederick Douglass, who would say, I want to be president. They would immediately say, you should appreciate what you have. Isn't this so much more? When the reality is, is all they're saying is we have the right to continue being violent in ways that you can't yet fight against. Mm hmm. Mm. That's an ig- I, I see that as a form of demanding that an ignorance exists at levels of power, whereas James Baldwin said, ignorance allied with power is the greatest threat that justice can ever have. Hmm. It, it's sort of like what people say, after all we've done for you. Yeah, I mean, even that statement, after all we've done for you, immediately right. reasserts the hierarchy, right? right? We right. did something for you, meaning that on the other side of it, we were doing something to you, which gets back to the challenge of acknowledgement in restoration and rehabilitation of relationships, where one would say, you should appreciate what you what I gave you, which means that I insist on still being above you and parroting down resources. I don't seek to level the playing field. I, I, I seek for you to recognize the validity of me being incrementally nicer to you, which doesn't mean you're relating to that person as a human. You're actually relating to them through a hierarchy that you may still be organizing power to uphold. So this is, I, I want to bring, um, I want to bring the Bible, maybe the, the gospel a little bit into this because when I when I hear that, so I just give a little context for my question, is, you know, I would have grown up in a tradition where it was very much about the individual, that basically most of our problems could be solved if individuals just asked Jesus into their heart and were nicer to each other. And you've used words like systems of power, and I feel like for a lot of people in my uh, my community growing up, that would have been really abstract and really hard to understand. They can understand asking Jesus into my heart and that changing my life. And if we all did that, it would change everything. But when you start talking about this, these institutions and systems, it starts getting abstract. So can you maybe talk about how the gospel intersects with this idea of system? Yeah. First, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out a, uh, one of my favorite scriptures that speaks about, uh, essentially says, do not forsake the blessing of your assembly. And deep down with that saying is that there are certain things that can only happen in community. There are certain epiphanies that can only happen in community. The requirement of testimony, right? Testimony meaning that I I am now verbally expressing a thing that I could not create in life 
that God created for me that I will now say to the masses so that they know he is there for them as well. And so if they are sitting in shame about what is going through in their lives, they can now know that they are not alone and that there is a way further by, again, reinvesting and reinforcing the validity and the, the importance of relying upon your faith in God. The, the, the reality of assembly as juxtaposed with the demand for individual action that you may be speaking about, right? If, if, if you would just believe in Jesus, it would all get better. The reality is, 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 you know, I see that being cut with Jesus saying, well, what you did for the least of these you've done for me. And then secondarily looking at him and saying, the poor will always be with you. Going back to Adam and saying, you know, the, the curses that you will toil, meaning that we're talking about things that happen in time. Not only that, that if, if sin truly cloaks the world, then the poor always being with us, they're only with us because of us and how we are, which goes back to, well, then if there is poverty, then there's a difference in the hierarchy of power. That power moves through economies and economics. Again, that ec economics and ec those economies move through community. And so at the end of the day, it is impossible in my mind and through my experience to assume that individual absolution will ever lead to societal change. Individual abs absolution or individual power and agency only means that you will have a better understanding of your cross to bear. But just because you bear your cross, if God actually gave you that cross, because a lot of people just hang themselves up there and expect us to respect <laughs> the cross they made. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hate my job and that's my yeah. cross. That's not your cross. Yeah. Like you got a sucky job. You yeah. like <laughs> relegated responsibility years ago. Like that's on you, bro. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, but the reality is, is that, that Dr. King said this beautiful thing. He said, we cannot negate that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality an inescapable network of mutuality, inescapable. The reality is, is we are all connected. That's why when I go back to Justice Informed and when I was thinking, I founded the company and when I was thinking about how do I found this in a way that it is light and life? Well, then it has to be an invitation because Christ moved his actions as every action was simply an invitation through modeling what life was like if you truly believed, how hard it would be and how beautiful it would be. But secondarily, he focused on being relationally specific. And so to say that if everybody would just be Peter, Paul, Simon, etc., then the world will be better. The reality is even together, those people didn't always believe because the, the moment Jesus was gone, they all went back to what they were doing. Mm. And so we have to commit together, even if just for Peter to be together with Paul enough to say, hey, Peter, don't go back fishing. Just because that's what you were doing before you met Christ. Remember what you said you believed in. And in community, we can now be accountable to one another. You flip that over to racial challenges. The reality is that we live in a country where people don't want to be accountable to other people that they have never historically had to consider. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge there is also for the church that when you focus on this individualist gospel, when the reality of even the, <laughs> the great chapter right after the Gospels, right, Acts, was all about the church coming together. Yes, every individual person is a church, but the reality is the church is also an assembly of people. And there are systemic realities that happen because people are BSing and people are violent and people are insisting that people who have never had power, who have been marginalized for generations, live under the veil of some terrible relationship called appreciate what little things mm -hmm. I give to you versus step into the fullness of an accountable, valid, resourceful, abundant relationship 
that is rooted in acknowledgement of harm, that is rooted in the sharing of resources, that is rooted in changing time by changing ourselves in our time. Mm-hmm. And people are stepping away from that. And I think that we can put strategies and ideas and words to create narratives where people don't look at this as loss. They don't think I need to do this one thing at work, do this other thing at church. They realize that what I do at work influences what I have at church and what I have at church influences how I think about work. But I do all of that in this network of inescapable, this inescapable network of mutuality with people Mm -hmm. who are near me and people who are not people who look like me and people who don't. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. So the gospel, I mean, to, to maybe state the obvious, the gospel must work on the level of that inescapable network of mutuality. It's not just an individual thing. And of course, that means critiquing the systems and people in power typically aren't good at doing that. So you have to address, you have, you have to address power somehow too, which I think is a very difficult thing to do. So how... Uh, maybe walk us through that dynamic of there are people in power who who like things the way they are and pra- in church or wherever and might not want to listen. 
How, how do you persuade them? I mean, you, you mentioned before there are precedents in our American legal system to take action. And sometimes I imagine you have to fight. And other times you have to be very diplomatic and you consult one way here and one way um, elsewhere. But flesh it out a little bit for us. Well, this is where it does matter. The, the understanding of the power of the individual does come in. Because I, I, I didn't say all that I said just now to <clears throat> negate the power of the individual. I, I was saying it to create the understanding of the juxtaposition between the power of the individual versus the power of the assembly, though both are respectively important. I'm not, I, I, you know, through my work, through my life, again, looking at Christ's example, I'm not looking to persuade Caesar. My job here is not to challenge Pilate. My job here is not to persuade the people. I am seeking to model what I believe to be the righteous way of building a company, of leading a team, of speaking life and light, and contending with my own demons before I insist other people cage theirs. And that is the responsibility of the individual. However, if I see myself to be called into leadership, as I have, then I need to remember what is said in the book of James. Not many of you should be teachers, for you should be held to a stricter standard, which means that I will have different challenges because leaders go before the people, not in terms of their position in life and hierarchy, but in terms of what you have to endure because taking on the matters of the cross, as my pastor says it, right, it is taking responsibility for the multitude. Jesus did not contend with Caesar. Caesar was simply a symptom of the system that we insisted on. The, the police officers who walked Jesus to the cross and then stabbed him when he was down. They are a symptom of what we require when we don't know how to keep peace. We insist on delegating the responsibility of safety to officers rather than taking on that responsibility ourselves in a shared and equitable and abundant community that we can construct. And so I'm not trying to persuade any corporate CEO, though I know I have the ear of a lot of corporate CEOs. I'm not trying to persuade nonprofit teams or executive directors or philanthropic CEOs. I'm not trying to persuade them. I'm trying to build a company, build an institution that looks like something better than the racism they've committed to, that looks like something better than the agnostic relationships they've committed to, that looks like something better than being wary of anti-harassment policies or litigation from women who feel like they've been or have actually been harassed. Uh, build a company that is a, a, a petri dish and a playground for ideas in the midst of all the chaos that we've insisted on. And, and I believe that's the point of a company. I don't, you know, when I, when people ask me, what is a pro, what is profit? I got into the, this argument with these folks who are insistent on trying to figure out how do we reclaim capitalism and how do we make it more conscious? And I'm like, bro, you're starting with the wrong question. <laughs> the reality is that if you think that profit is simply the returns, uh, you know, your, 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 your revenue minus your cost and you're off. The reality is, is that the very definitions of business don't require social costs to be put into the formula for businesses' financial solvency. You can start a real estate firm and, and buy and sell all types of types of, of companies and, or sorry, um, properties. But the reality is, is that it does not, the, the, building a company in America that buys and sells stolen land, which is what it is, all this land is stolen land, where there's not been acknowledgement or restitution to indigenous populations or people, you can do all of that and never have to deal with the cost to our government for affordable housing. You can do all of that and, and, and denigrate the validity of the lives of people who are poor because you call it a quote unquote up and coming neighborhood, which essentially means that there are less poor people there where there are less people that look a certain way, you can still do all of that and have a profit. The question is, what good is that to the rest of us? 
And for me, I center and anchor, unlike many companies I found, I anchor my decision-making on how it affects the poor, the marginalized, the people who are not white, people who are black and brown, indigenous populations, immigrant. I mean, all of my company's money is with a bank right now that I, when talking to the bank owner, he told me flat out, 80% of our mortgages in our portfolio go to undocumented persons. I said, praise God, hallelujah. My company grows, your bank grows. That's what I want to be with. I want to be with people mm. who, ex- who bring in the refugees. Mm. I want to be with people who are giving out loans to little tiny, you know, <laughs> mom and pop shops or the little eloteras on the corner who are selling those little bowls of corn with mayonnaise and hot chilies. You know, and they need 500 bucks just to start their little shop. They, they don't need $50,000 like a company like mine would need. But no bank like J.P. Morgan Chase is going to give a $500 loan, but this little bank will. And that's community. But that's a level of conscientiousness that's actually creating challenges for me with like my accountant. Because he's like, why are you spending? They can't even, it doesn't connect to QuickBooks. Like, <laughs> they know the bank doesn't have the sophistication. Like, come on, Xavier, how far are you going to go with this crap? <laughs> like, 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 and, and that's the work for our time. That's the work for our time. At some point, we've got to take on that work. Hi everyone, my name is Joanne Antor from Dearborn, Michigan, and I'm part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. I appreciate that Pete and Jared love the Bible and their respectful handling of the sacred book. I love that there is no fear in confronting any of the messy, intriguing, and wisdom aspects of the Bible. This has been invaluable to me as I walk through the rebuilding of my own faith. If you too have been enriched by this free podcast, please consider supporting Pete and Jared at patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. For as little as $1 a month, you can be a part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. There are lots of videos from Pete and Jared and discussion groups. Please check it out. If you aren't able to support the podcast financially, don't worry. Just go to iTunes and rate review the podcast. This will go a long way in helping others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group who truly helped the podcast improve and make it what it is today. Special thanks to Kevin Rumpel, Stephen Cleet Ross, Casey Hatcher, Jay Batson, Robert Sedlaski, Evan Cauley, David Kaline, and Anna Bateman. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Can you say more about this idea of, you've mentioned a few times of, of proximity, because I think that's important. And I think of uh, the work of like even Peter Block and community building and, and the work he's done with Walter Brueggemann in tying it to some biblical notions. Uh, but maybe say that because that's a word I think a lot of people wouldn't connect to what what we're talking about here. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this because of a challenge I've got right now with one of our clients. You know, they're trying to understand how do they, they're, they're a consulting firm as well. And if you know anything about most consulting firms, especially the big ones, it's, it's mostly a bunch of white guys. And the challenge with that is, again, consulting is the, the selling of ideas, meaning that when a consultant gives an idea, that becomes the narrative that people live in. And so if we only have one type of person who's able to create an idea, that means we're living in the narratives that only white men create for the world. That fundamentally is a challenge because if you look at sociological trends, most white people don't integrate. And the moment that their neighborhoods become racially integrated, they usually leave within 10 years. And I'm not saying that as like a racial statement. I'm saying that as a sociological truth. You can look at the data. You can look it up. It's called sprawl. It's very very easy to understand when you look at the numbers. So proximity 
is when you reverse that and you bring people back in. A lot of people don't understand what you get with proximity. Here's what's awesome about proximity. You get the little things. Think about it, the difference between babysitting versus having the children yourself. Right? When you're babysitting, you show up a couple hours a day, maybe twice or two, three times a week. Right? You understand the child through the lens of the transactional process you've instigated and instituted. When you're the parent, you're there for all the little things. You're there to know a being intimately. You're there for the beautiful things, the horrible things. And what happens when you're that proximate? You learn the most about yourself. Because it's one of the, the proximity actually allows for us to understand God even better because we're forced to contend with the limits of our humanity. We're forced to deal with our selfishness as it bubbles up in the face of another person's need. But it wouldn't be there if we just showed up, you know, every Saturday for two hours for the soup kitchen in the black neighborhood. That's not real proximity. Proximity would mean how would we move into a neighborhood and not become a gentrifier? How would we step into an ecosystem of relationships and histories and language and culture and not be an extractive presence? That's the only way to be proximate and just because one can be proximate and unjust. Look at what the pilgrims did. Hmm. Look at what people continue to do. That's, that's why gentrification exists. It is, the, it is the reality of our modern day proximity that lacks justice. People who have labor market opportunities that other people who don't look like them don't have then see the land that those poor people live in and live on as a market opportunity because those other folks are priced out of the opportunities where the other privileged people come from. You know, this reminds me a little bit of uh, the work of Emmanuel Levinas, the, the philosopher who sort of has this ethics of the face. Um, you know, face to face, the face of the other sort of uh, is the face of God. And that sort of commands us into this ethical responsibility that, and, and it is a very physical proximate thing that it was, it was very, very grounded in physical relationship with one another and looking into the face of the other. Yeah. I, you know, I think it, the challenge with, with proximity is that you got to think it's your job. You know, I, 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 a couple of years ago, I had this, this big push. It was just on my mind and heart for years, and it still is, um, the challenge around how people insist on transactional relationships and absol- I'll say social impact absolution by just being charitable or philanthropic, right? People who literally give back in neighborhoods they vote against, like the hypocrisy of it all. Right. The demand to go to countries that are all brown people, right, to go down to Venezuela, to go down to Sri Lanka, all black people go over to Ethiopia and Kenya and then not understand your responsibilities towards justice and equity at home. As you sit in a country where now along racial lines, you have an entire swath of people saying, make America great. And they all look the same. They all want the same. America. It's, it's like... <laughs> of African-Americans did not vote for the man who thinks that we should be a country that none of the people that look like me want to live in again. So let me, let me translate this because again, you, you use some, use some big words there. So I'm going to break it down into my, how I would translate what you just said, which is our churches are set up in such a way, like I'm thinking of mission trips or charitable giving, or all these things are set up in such a way that we can assuage ourselves of our guilt or our obligation to be like Jesus by babysitting rather than learning to have children of our own, to use your analogy before. So that if, if, I can, if I can go on the mission trip, that absolves me of my responsibilities, and so I don't have to confront all the ways 
that I'm actually uh, complicit in a system for my own comfort here. Um, and so we find these ways to be, you know, I think of uh, the philosopher Zizek who talks about the rise of uh, how we build our charity into our consumerism so that now the way I give is to round up my dollar at Starbucks to the local charity. And so is that the kind of thing like, well, it's almost like these small micro, the micro giving is a way that we can sort of absolve ourselves of the greater responsibility at home. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a big difference between charity and philanthropy. Charity fundamentally, I mean, I'm saying this in the biblical sense, mm-hmm. philanthropy was created by us. Philanthropy is the systemic response to economic injustice that we created to absolve people who I would rather call pirates to make them in, uh, into people that we can look up to and put on the front of some building as a name. Mm-hmm. Charity is understanding that, again, the poor will always be with you and they don't deserve that. That they are poor for a reason. It's looking at the widow who gave the might and not simply stopping at the fact that she had faith, but realizing that the might was demanded of her. She only had a might because of the rest of us. And understanding your responsibility to shift that needle just a little bit. And it doesn't simply mean giving back and reorganizing how you think about the, the, the beyond the 10% tithe you may give to your church. But it means understanding that how you make your dollar creates the poverty. When I was starting Justice Inform, I, was, I spent some time thinking about how do I actually run a company justly? I came across a couple of scriptures. One of them was um, pay your workers at the end of the day for their bread depends upon it. Meaning that I have to be timely in my transactions with people with people who, who trust me because I'm going in front of them to bring in business for the company. Not only that, it also said pay your, fa- your, your, your laborers a fair wage because they may turn to sin. Which means that when I say, well, the, the minimum wage of justice informed is the living wage for the city wherever our contractors are at. And then we work up from there based off of experience and ability. But if that's the living wage, then that makes no sense in a market economy because the market economy says you should only try to reduce costs. But I'm simply incorporating social costs, which goes back to what I said earlier. Businesses, because they don't have to incorporate them, most of businesses are not financially solvent. They're extractive. Which goes back to then what is justice and what is love in community? To run a company in community means you have to love the laborer. Means you have to understand that you are a steward, not an owner. You have to understand that what is just requires something of you beyond what you have after you're done paying yourself, which means that you have to also reorganize what money means to you. Money, you know, (laughs) to me, money is not the reward for acting smartly. You can be smart and be the greatest pirate in the world. The majority of our major institutions that were built before the year 2000, for the most part, were built on on the legacy and the insistence on white supremacy. And many people may not understand what that means, but that simply means that the norms, the worldviews, the cultures, the practices, and the presence of white people formed the foundation for how the company was built. That's all that means. That doesn't mean Nazis and swastikas. It doesn't mean anti-Semitism. doesn't mean bring out the, the lynch mobs and the nooses. That isn't what it means. It simply means that we centered a people who were already in the center. And that is how we created that thing supremacy of one type, one kind. And given that, justice then, and righteousness, as, right, as justice is a form of, of righteousness, means that we have to uncouple our institutions, including our churches, from white supremacy. We also have to uncouple it from male supremacy. 
and bring in the reality of the power that women have to lead the workforce. It means that we have to decouple our understanding of, of, of how we only center ourselves when we think about gender, how we think about accessibility. For those people who are like the man who sat at the, at the, at the front of the church, right, laying on a mat for years, or the leper who Jesus would minister to, with, they, they, would, they would bring through the roof of the church who could not walk. How many people would say, yeah, I'm going to tear off the top of the church so I can bring my friend in? Because he needs to hear this. Not too many. The reality is, no, no. I mean, you know, in the face of what you're asked, what will you do? In the face of what you feel God is asked, what would you do? And, and the reality of, of where I get this insistence and quite honestly, in, impatience, is that everybody acts like God's not saying something different to, to more of us. It's, there's no way God's calling everybody to be a volunteer and nobody's Martin Luther King again. There's no way. Everybody's signing up for their own version of the cross, the safest thing that they can do to accumulate as much as they can so that they can give a little bit back and hope that they're not Cain, but instead that they're able and they're blessing and that their sacrifice will be blessed. Hmm. But the reality is, is the way we're making our money creates the realities that scripture foretold that the poor will always be with us. The widow will always be, will have a might. And it is no, no act of justice for us to uphold the widow and insist on her poverty. Hmm. That leads me to a question is, is capitalism a problem or are people the problem or are it, it doesn't matter what system we have in place, what economic system we have in place, something's going to go wrong. The way yeah, I mean, something's are. always going to go wrong, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's always going to go wrong. Like yeah. it's, it's, we can build the next jubilant, beautiful system, but it's still going to go wrong eventually. The, the, the question is much like David, right? King David, he's a man after God's own heart because he kept trying. In the face of his shortcomings, he kept, he repented, he came right back to center and he said, you know what, yeah, that was messed up. Not only that, I will accept accountability. I'm not simply going to say, well, Lord, I said sorry, so let's let's call it at that. He's also not going to say, well, you know, Bathsheba killed your husband there. I will just, just uh, accept a sorry on that one, right? That's what a lot of men in power are trying to do. They're, they're demanding appreciation for the lowest form of relationship or not even giving the lowest form of relationship, which is acknowledgement of harm done. And insisting that that restitution come through the definition of those who inflicted the harm, um, but in the space of our capital economies and capitalism, capitalism is simply an expression of the vanity and the ambitions of our hearts in a systemic way. Um, capitalism, I think, is fundamentally uh, problematic simply because. Um, Coupled with our legal system and our judicial uh, and, and our, our, our judiciary, it tends to try to be identity agnostic. It acts as if like, well, there's no such thing as, uh, you know, racism in the markets, right? The market's going to do whatever's best for the markets. And if there is little racism, the market will, the invisible hand, which is probably white, will simply get rid of it. <laughs> like, no, that doesn't work. And if, even, if it, even if it did work, it shouldn't take 200 years. Or in the case of African-Americans, 400 even if it does work, it shouldn't, it shouldn't mean that women have to fight just for the right to vote, right? And the, the ability to vote has an effect on our economies because when, in that case, women were not participating in our economy, meaning that white guys were getting a pass to start companies and now they get to be the names on the, on the banks and on all the big buildings and they had, they had a cheat code. And we, have, we, we act as if they did some great and wonderful thing but they did that great and wonderful thing upon a foundation that excluded competition in a market that said it was based on exactly that. Mm. So, uh, what 
what are because I, I think with the news of everything, social ills and social injustices, it can be easy to get kind of overwhelmed with what what to do. What are some practical things that you know people who are listening may say? I'm tracking. I'm tracking with everything you're saying. Are there some things to prioritize in my life that would help this move forward? Yeah, don't say work in the soup kitchen, right? <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> okay, no, still work in the soup kitchens. Like you gotta still like people yeah. still need food. Like we can't neglect that. True. Um, true but just know true. that the soup kitchen is a symptom of the expression of our vanity and, and demand for accumulation. Yeah. Personally. Um, but, but, but in terms of what we do about it, the first thing is, is to stop saying we're overwhelmed. Stop saying it's too hard, right? The reality is we're simply unpracticed. We practice racism. We practice sexism. We practice ignoring the calls of the poor. We practice justifying harm. We practice these things. And so we're good at it. And re- the reality is, is if, in, why, why do we have to fight for justice, but we mm-hmm. don't have to fight for injustice? Yeah. That's part of the challenge, right? Like we are practicing something. The Bible says you rush to sin. Hmm. And then and then in another sense, one of the saints says, I must make my body my slave, meaning that his he that he is not in control of his body. And he has it is a daily bread, a daily sacrifice, a daily dying unto oneself to do that. And so when we think about what it actually takes. What it takes comes through one proximate relationships, because I'm not going to prescribe what any person should do for a community. I'm not going to say there's some best practices for engaging indigenous population or some best practices for engaging across the aisle politically. There's some best practice for engaging people of color. All I'm going to say is the first thing you got to start doing is decentering yourself. Same thing when you're trying to grow a relationship with Christ, you got to stop growing a relationship with your crappy self, mm-hmm. <laughs> which means you have to accept that you're kind of crappy right now. And mm-hmm. unpracticed. And people will be like, oh, I got to pray every day. You're not crappy because, Lord, I repent of my eating habits. M- more, I repent because of how complicit I have been in the injustice, in the unrighteousness, in perpetuating a system of not having to think about race or gender if you're a white male. You know, it's it's, and I think that what I'm hearing is that, yeah, I'm thinking of myself – about not being practiced, that might not be the first thing that comes into people's minds, the big picture of the suffering of others. It might just mean what what you're dealing with right now in your life. Like, I have to stop being mean to my neighbor. Yeah, you probably should, but that's like 101. But you also have to think about why is your, your neighbor's not your neighbor for no reason. Hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Like, like (laughs) white, white people tend to trust and congregate around white people. Black people do the same thing, but those things happen for different reasons. Yeah. And I'm talking specifically in large metropolises. I know that rural America is very different and, 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 and small towns are very different, but I'm saying for the metropolises of our country, they are racially diverse and racially segregated. And so in the space of that, what does that mean, right? So this notion Mm -hmm. of practice, I think it's, it's, so think about Zacchaeus. If you know the the story of Zacchaeus, was the the man who's up in the tree and he's like, Jesus, 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 come on, I need you, Jesus, (laughs) right? (laughs) Jesus is like, man, that dude is really thirsty. Like, oh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after me. Look at this guy hungering and thirsting. Come on down, Zacchaeus, right? So he gets his prices right moment. He comes on down. (laughs) <laughs> and, and he, he, he gets to, in, to have Jesus over for dinner. I can only, you know, the Bible only says he spoke with him for a while. The outcome of Jesus talking with him was that Zacchaeus said, you know what? Now I understand what I've been doing. 
all Jesus was probably talking to him was saying was like, Hey dude, you're uh, kind of ignorant and you're violent. And because you have power and money, uh, you're actually the greatest threat that justice can ever have. Yeah. And so at the end of the conversation, Zacchaeus decides on some practical steps. The first thing he agrees to is acknowledgement. The second thing is restitution. He says, look, I'll give away fourfold what I've taken. Not only that, I will change my practices. And so many people want to stop at one of those three. They want to either stop at acknowledgement, they want to stop at restitution, or they want to not move to their practices. So if a company's understanding that it is actually creating injustice as it seeks to have a diversity and inclusion strategy, it would have to look at the way in which it manufactures its goods, the way it looks at its supplier diversity, the way in which it looks at its proximity to other countries, the way it looks at its language through branding. It would have to look at those things to see how are we, and this is where it's different, how are we centering the marginalized, not just our profits, not just our shareholders, not just the people who have readily available access to us through their power and economies, but the people who are the stakeholders and invisible to us, mm-hmm. which would require a level of proximity of their team, their team would have to know how to go into those spaces, be more proximate, and not just through volunteering, through neighborliness, because there are a lot of people, a lot of companies that have employees who insist on not being neighbors. Again, I go back to racially diverse cities that are segregated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The workplace cannot be the most diverse place for us. This is all, again, community, proximity, right? like, yeah. like centering. It's, it's all the same thing, but it, the first thing you got to start with is saying, I'm willing to simply consider, right? When I'm talking to my team around the greatest thing that you can ever do, what we can do as consultants is to get someone to consider. That's what Jesus was going after, right? Mm -hmm. Can I get you to consider something different? Which means I have to have a linguistic and a tactical approach to get you to confront your heart, not your mind, your heart. And if I can do that, now your mind is going to understand the strategies that are necessary to validate what your heart has now agreed to. I.e. Zacchaeus comes up on his own volition with what he must do. And Jesus mm-hmm. blesses that because it, it came out of a heart that was reformed. Yeah. He, he blesses him by saying salvation has come to this house, which is, you know, broadening the concept uh, of, of that word for what most people probably carry with them is a very individualistic, but the salvation that's come to his house is not, Oh good. Now when you die, you won't go to hell. It's you're saved. Right. You're, you're, you're you're part of the kingdom in a way because you are now re- you're committing yourself to change your practices and to not be a burden to others but be a help to others and that's salvation you know that's the and I, and I think that that idea of righteousness and justice which are twin concepts in both testaments you know those those things are really gee the prophets keep talking about this stuff you know and 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 I don't know we selectively read our Bible, I guess. I know I do, but I feel bad about it. <laughs> I'm going to change I my mean, practices. If you, uh, in terms of a practice, read your Bible and say, what does this have to do with how I understand people who are not like me? Right? Yeah. If I'm wealthy, how does, how does anything I read actually reorganize the harm that was there in the Bible's time and is here in our time? Right? How, if I read my Bible and I'm, I mean, I was in a conversation with an um, a Airbnb host who was trying to explain to me why his friends in the Aryan nation and in the clan were such great guys. I wasn't expecting that to be my Airbnb experience, um, <laughs> but it was. I, I didn't look it up. It was in a big red state. I saw gun shops and tackle shops everywhere. And then my Airbnb host is, is upset because I was writing an article on Colin Kaepernick, this Christian magazine, and why should Christians consider the, the reality and importance of protest? And the, at the end of it, Right. It was, again, sitting down with a person who was curious, but also ignorantly violent, or I would say violently ignorant. 
the ability to sit with someone who, for him, he was justifying people who have historically and presently in many ways believed in the invalidity of my entire race of people. Mm-hmm. But they're nice guys. Well, proximity, right? Like right. I was able to sit down for eight, it was probably six, seven hours. We ended wow. up around four o'clock in the morning after flushing down almost an entire bottle of bullet bourbon. and sitting at his counter in his little cottage with his wife sitting there. And the only thing that got through to him, the only thing that got through to him at the end of it was when I said, look, I don't know that you understand whether black lives matter or not. And I know you don't understand what I'm talking about around white privilege because your grandparents came here as immigrants and they worked the land and they gave them nothing. And yada, yada. I've heard that before, but the reality is, is you fundamentally do not have the ability to listen and to understand and consider the other. And it starts with, as I told him, your wife has been silent for two hours and you did not even notice the silence that you demand from your own choices. And so I know you can't see me because I'm asking you to choose me and you only love the things you chose and you treat the things you chose by demanding silence. Hmm. So how can I expect that you would understand how black lives can matter when you don't even know how to make those things matter that you chose for your life? I'm out, dude. Have a great night. Thanks for the bourbon. See you in the morning. Yeah, well. <laughs> right, well. But, but that morning he was standing outside my cottage. Yeah. And, and he was like, I didn't sleep all night. Okay, I didn't, good. He was like, I didn't sleep all night. My wife didn't sleep all night. We were talking about what you said. And I had simply used a tactic that I use called issue switching, where, you know, knowing that people insist on deifying their choices. And so in order to get them to change and to consider other choices, you have to meet them in what they've chosen. Right. It's why when Jesus was with the woman at the well, he not only asked for water, which is the thing to come, but he also met her in her choices with the man back in the house. He didn't Mm -hmm. talk about some lofty other stuff. This is his consulting model. Yeah. Right. And so for me, I have to meet this man in his choice and not invalidate it. I simply have to make it seen. I have to put light on it in order for there to be life on it. But that is only after he's invited me in like Ezekiel's. And so now I will invest in you because the world would say, why would you ever talk to that man? But I've seen something in your heart and I see something in my skills. And so now this is an opportunity. By the time I left that man, he was, I gave him a, uh, a book, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, which if you haven't read it, if you're listening, please pick up The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. Please, please, please put that on your reading list. It is a very simple book, very easy to understand. It's, it's a letter from a black man who is now passed on, but it was a letter to his nephew that he published. And now that guy, he sent me an email a little bit later. He started a book club and all this stuff around black authors in his area. And like, I don't know, but the, the point is you plant some seeds. You don't know what's going to grow, but the reality is, is getting people to consider, getting people to be proximate, understanding that we have a responsibility to engage by confronting people in their choices as much as we have to confront the choices we've made about people that are, that are unseen in our lives. Yeah. Salvation came to that house too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't take any responsibility for that. That's for that man and God. Cause he's yeah. got that man I talked to. He's got to do the same thing. Zacchaeus said after his glorious day with Christ, he's got to mm-hmm. die every day and focus on his daily bread, which so, is hard. He's got to go to his friends and say, I'm doing this different thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately we've we've come to the end of our time here and and so you've you've plugged uh, james baldwin but what might else you promote here of, of your own work and and where can people find more about this conversation from you and and the work you're doing sure people can find me if you go on to google and you just type in xavier x-a-v-i-e-r ramey r-a-m-e-y chicago you'll find quite a bit of stuff 
Um, you can also go to XavierRamey.com. Uh, my company is JusticeInformed.com. You can also find me. I'm not on Twitter much, but I'm on Facebook quite a bit. And I tend to friend people. So just Facebook.com backslash XRamey. Um, I also run my mouth about corporate matters uh, on LinkedIn. So if you'd like to check me out on LinkedIn, you can Google Xavier or LinkedIn search Xavier Ramey Chicago. Um, I do a lot of rambling on Instagram, mostly through stories. Um, my handle is Professor X, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-O-R-E-C-K-S. So it's the, profet- the, the, the phonetic spelling of it all. Um, but I just also want to say thank you all so much for having this, the show and for having me on it. It's been great. Uh, I feel like I've been talking a lot, but I think that's the point of a podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's why you're here. Because I'm looking to launch mine next year. <laughs> um, and I'm working on a, working on a book uh, right now, actually, as I'm, I'm in Michigan on this retreat. I'm trying to start my first book of frameworks on how to engage uh, in these difficult, um, but I'll say temporarily difficult, only to those who are unpracticed conversations. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks so much again for taking out some time and, and chatting with us here, Xavier. Thank you. Yeah. See ya. Thanks so much. See ya. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for another episode of The Bible for Normal People. We hope you join us next week. But also, just a reminder, if you could, join us on March 26th at 8.30 p.m. for just an hour. Pay what you want. Just head to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash how to read the Bible. It'll take you to an Eventbrite page that'll give you more details. Also, uh, if you want to further the conversation, you can go to peteends.com. You can look us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're in all the places for those conversations. So we hope to see you there. 